0: Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you allow us to see more of you. Our ears are insufficient. My mouth is insufficient. All that we do here is insufficient without the power of your spirit blessing it. So we pray for your spirit of blessing to be poured out upon our look at the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a transition here in the book of Genesis to Exodus, which is an interesting one. Um, and, and we were in Genesis and, and really looking at the story of Joseph and Judah and Israel for most of last year. It wasn't the only book we covered. We also looked at Titus, and we looked at 1 Timothy, and we looked at uh, uh, the book of Habakkuk, which I thought was kooky. We called it Habakkuk, and uh, we looked elsewhere, but we mainly looked at, at Genesis, and, and when we come to Exodus, it is an interesting text in that you can even see in the early verses, it, it wants a seamless connection with Genesis. And in very many, very many ways, it is a seamless connection with Genesis. God is making clear that the Scriptures themselves are of one story, of, of one mind, that we shouldn't necessarily approach Exodus and totally forget about what we saw in Genesis. However, also in coming to Exodus, we need to be aware of something, and it's, it's kind of, we need to be aware of this in regards to the fact that there is something that happens in Exodus that the other 65 books, including Exodus, kind of boldly talk about, but it was really a new thing. For the people of God. See, Genesis is a family story. It is a story about a family, and now we have reached the point where this family has got, grown into a great nation. And that is different. Actually, it, I think there's a great irony of approaching this book in our day and age because... Um, You know, the George Soros-funded boogeymen of the world have, in the last year and a half, really made it scary to think of the idea of Christian nationalism. And I I don't know the full extent. I don't have the the desire to go down deep in the rabbit hole of all the scary things they've associated with this idea of Christian nationalism. But we should point out at the beginning of Exodus, this is a, a story of a nation. A nation of people who are under God. A nation of a people uh, that are known by His name. And so in one sense, Exodus is a story of a Hebrew nationalism. One of the images of us as followers of Christ is being a new nation. a, a, A people set apart and distinctive. And we'll even get into that a little bit Even in the name of Hebrew itself, what that name actually means. Why was that? Why were they called Hebrews? But very much, this is the story of the rise of a Hebrew nation. And we have connected back with the text hundreds of years after the Genesis story. And there's something we should appreciate about this and coming back hundreds of years to this family. Throughout history, we'll talk about, you know, when I teach history to the, the, for instance, the high school class here, you'll talk about the rise of empires. You know, the rise of the Egyptian empire, the rise of the Babylonian empire, the rise of the Greek empire, the rise of the Roman Empire, and we just kind of think of this big monolithic empire that arose, but actually, as empires arise, what they actually did, and what they actually do, is they kind of take over and incorporate other nations, other smaller empires, into their larger empire, eventually creating a large empire. And so, Historians and even archaeologists will find this when they dig up a place that has historic historical significance. They'll start digging and go, Oh, there was, we thought we were digging up a, a ruin uh, for the Persian Empire, but first it was this empire that was here. We never even knew they existed because empires, smaller empires, would be incorporated into larger empires. And that's kind of the history of. Uh, civilization, America, is in one sense called the great melting pot because in us is found a, a great blend of ethnicities and, and variety, and yet in that we kind of still have this shared unity. And so, one thing to pick up, pick up at the very start here in Exodus is the fact that we're returning hundreds of years later to a family that still has its own identity. Even though it was a part of this large, powerful superpower of its day, when push came to shove, they were distinct and different enough that they could be called Hebrews. They were set apart. They had this kind of reality to it. And this was actually kind of, it was a promise of God. It was a promise of God actually in Exodus. I mean, Genesis itself. In one sense, the the nation, the Hebrew nation that arises in the passages of the text of Exodus was established in its own preamble. Now, when we think of a preamble, what do we think of? For instance, the U.S. Constitution has a preamble. You might actually accidentally recite the Declaration of Independence, but the preamble to the U.S. Constitution is this. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. That's America's preamble. It's not the Constitution. It's what came before the Constitution, what came before the official declaration of the establishment of America um, to signify that this was to come, that a nation was to come forth. The preamble for the Hebrews actually comes to us from, at the start, Abraham's story. A good place to start would actually be Genesis 15, but Abraham's actually the first one called Abraham the Hebrew. God revealed to, for instance, in Genesis 15, that Abraham, Abram at the time, I will give you a land, I will make you the father of a great nation, and eventually become a father of many nations through this one nation. And yes, there would be a hard time, also of hardship and difficulty for these people who would become a nation. But he tells Abraham, Abraham, just as I brought you out of Ur, I'm going to bring those people out of their hardship. And so Exodus is a story of God honoring that preamble promise of establishing a nation through Abraham of just as I brought you out of Ur, Abraham, one day a people will come to you. Come from you who were enslaved, and yet for where they are, I'm gonna bring them out of their hardship and their slavery and bring them um, into a new kind of nation. And so God's interactions with Abraham and all throughout the book of Genesis with the patriarchs are preamble material to what we now see ourselves in in Genesis. Exodus is God starting to reveal his own declaration of independence against those enemies who would try to enslave the nation he desires his people to be. And for this nation, God will give them a word, a constitution, which is to basically inform and guide their human constitution that they can carry with them out into the wilderness of the world, out into the life, and and that this word is a good and righteous word. This Torah document would be a word that they will carry out into the hardships and and lean upon when they need to, knowing that they have a God who will fight for this nation against all other powers, both internal threats and external threats. Our chapter this week is an external one. Exodus is also a story of God's powerful love, preserving, again, a people that I talked about should have been lost to history. And so these threads are coming together. Exodus will show us that God intends to rescue his people from bondage and bring them into a greater relationship with himself before they would lose themselves to the powers of this world. And likewise, in one sense, the story of the Christian is about a rescue and relationship as well. That we uh, have been rescued by God from the bondage of sin in order that we might have a greater relationship with Him. That we do not lose ourselves to the powers and the ideologies of this world, to the idols and trinkets and things of this world, but no, rather we're set apart as a people for God. Exodus is a story that wants us to boldly ask God, God, is there any situation where you can't preserve your people? Where your plans can get thwarted? Where the pain gets too much to be too much? Where the powers of the world are too overwhelming? And, And the answer is no. God will bless His people. He will redeem His people. He will sanctify our sorrows. Now, in our passage this morning, God's name will never be officially mentioned. Yet he is all over the text, with those with eyes of faith to see it. And our passage begins in verse 6, as we can see, in the shadow of a death. And the shadow of whose death? According to verse 6, the favored son of Israel, Joseph's shadow, but also to all the brothers of Joseph's generation. The 12 sons of Israel in their fullness, whom had been promised to become a distinct and set-apart tribe of people. Really, 12 tribes of people. By the way, we as a Christian people, what are we a community of? In a certain way, we are a community that first finds itself in the shadow of death. In the shadow of the death of the greatest Son of Israel, Jesus Christ our Lord. But it's not just the shadow of death because He has power over life itself. But Jesus is our Lord and Savior. But also, we follow the the pattern and the teachings of the apostles, the brothers of Christ. We are; They are no longer roaming the earth. And if we want apostolic power, we want to know the apostolic word, we don't look for a big-hatted guy in Rome, but we actually just read the apostolic prophetic word. That's what we do. That's what we have. And if we do that, we will be a people that we can see in verse 7, God continues to fruitfully multiply and to increase. By the way, when you think of being fruitful and multiply, what language does that remind you of? Fruitful and multiply. Where do we get that? Where's the first time we run across that in Scripture? Be fruitful and multiply. You all know it now, people are muttering now. Genesis, Genesis yes, no muttering. No muttering. I, yes, there we go. Uh, so, yeah, so here we are. We're, we're in Exodus, it says, there. This should have been a nation that was formless and void. A nation where hundreds of years have gone by and there are no longer really any Hebrews. There are no longer really no sons of Israel. And yet, because in the shadow of death, they are a nation that is connected to the favored son of Israel whom God loves. There is life. And there's not just any life. They're not just keeping up with the Egyptians. They're actually being fruitful and multiplying. And and this land of Goshen that they were given to live in has been... It's teeming with life. It's teeming with life. And yet there is a new pharaoh who comes. A pharaoh who does not remember the story of the favorite son of Israel. Which is a great insult Because the only reason why this pharaoh has power, the only reason why this pharaoh has an empire is that these favored descendants of the blessed son of Israel, maybe I should have said blessed, but the favored son of Israel, Joseph, that this son helped usher in a a great feast, a great Harvest that they did not allow this nation to starve to death, but rather thrive in great hardship. If the Pharaoh had had the wisdom to understand, how did I get to this position of power? How did I get to run and rule over a nation with the vast wealth, the vast strength that it has? If he had had the wisdom to know history, to to appreciate the past, And the wisdom we can learn from it. He would have looked at that land of Goshen and he would have said, ah, those fruitful people that have blessed our nation, they continue to be fruitful because their God is fruitful and their God blesses them. Their God loves to see them grow and to increase. And yet that's not the story. This Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. And if he doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know Joseph's God. And if you don't know the favored son's God, you're an enemy to God. And he hates the favored son of Israel. And he hates the people of God. And so actually, in one sense, arising from this Exodus story is here... A creational account that God continues to grow His church. That the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet enemies will come still against it. And this Pharaoh is a serpent-like figure who desires the demise. He sees the, the fruitfulness of this Hebrew people in his midst. And he hates it. And he wants to destroy it. You know... I have to I have to make this application. We live in a nation that it would not be far-fetched I'm going to put it in second place in all of human history that has had a fruitful abundance unlike any other in human history. I think only Israel maybe can we can make it a different argument too. And I, and I just had to think as we continue to go into what the, the, the political philosophers are calling a post-Christian United States, post-Christian United States, it's, it's going to be woefully terrible. It's going to implode so dramatically that they, they can't even fathom what's coming if, if we continue on this path. Because they want previous patterns of fruitfulness that have been established by a nation that was unashamed of the name of God and was patterned under a society that tried to live under the auspice. Not entirely. I don't want to, to generalize America, but there was a strong appreciation for the value of Christian, the Christian faith within our society. As a foundation for truth, as a foundation for morals, as a foundation for what work looks like, what society looks like. And, 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 and during that prosperity, we created even societal programs and these sorts of things that kind of programmed into them. I'm talking about things like Social Security, but programmed into them is an expectation there's fruitfulness down the line. That, that we will continue to be fruitful, that we'll continue to have descendants, that we won't get carried off into this cult of like deciding we can't have any more children being born or or these sorts of things but actually implies a fruitful continuing on of the things that had been previously established you know what exodus will help show you how quickly a society can turn against the fruitful of god hate the fruitful nature Of God and his people. And do it to its doom. And its peril. And its destruction. I don't want you to go through the book of Exodus. And not catching that parallel. Hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully our rulers. Our leaders. And whom we pray for. Just praying for them downstairs. Have the wisdom. To not hate. The fruitful truth. The fruitful prosperity of God and his people. By the way, this is one of the reasons why God calls his people to be salt of the earth. Salt was the ancient refrigerator. It was the ancient preservative. You, you, you want a Christianity that looks like the world? You're not going to help them preserve anything. You're not going to help them preserve society. It's going to just go bad. It's going to go foul. This Pharaoh, in one sense, is rejecting the salt of the earth that is within his kingdom. He's going to make war against the salt. And when he makes war against the salt, God is going to come down hard on him and crush him. Leaders that take that path, which forsake and do not remember the favored son of Israel who God blesses people with, uh, they will be judged for it. So, at the start of Exodus, we have a reminder of what the world is like when God and his people are forgotten. And so, the Pharaoh plans first to burden the people greatly with the most difficult jobs in the land, afflicting them with heavy burdens, as we can see in verse 11. And yet, as we read as the verse follows, that the more that Pharaoh fought against God and his people by oppressing the people whom carry his name, we see in verse 12, the more the people of God are shown to grow even further. In the soil of persecution, God continues to bless his church. Remember, God's, as we already said, God's first command of Scripture is to be fruitful and multiply. God's going to see that through. If that's God's command, God's interested in making sure that first command is followed through. And that first command echoes even the Great Commission itself. Now, sometimes being fruitful, multiplying for anyone who's a gardener, so not me, knows that that means pruning, that means Sometimes cutting some branches. That means um, having difficult decisions that are made or difficult realities. But still, that persecution becomes fertile soil for the true church of God. And as we can read in verse 12, at the early start of this battle between Pharaoh and God, notice the Egyptians in verse 12. They were aware that this battle had started. They see what Pharaoh's doing. They know what he's doing. They know what he's making war against. The people of Egypt saw the fruitfulness of this faithful nation and in the midst of their demonic ruler's resistance towards them. And seeing that he's not being successful in his first attempt to call the people of God, the Egyptians were not horrified at their Pharaoh. Or they didn't say, well, obviously, their God is superior than our pagan gods. We remember that. We remember Joseph. No, the Egyptians were utterly terrified that Pharaoh wasn't successful. They saw Pharaoh persecuting a nation's worth of people, being faithful to God, and they didn't intervene on behalf of that nation. They didn't cry out for mercy for them. No, they too did not want to tolerate this people. They were terrified, actually, at the reality that Pharaoh's first attempts were unsuccessful. When the godless, see godless leaders, start persecuting the faithful, this is a concerning reality that even if we didn't have Exodus, we would know is true of history. They're often more worried about it failing rather than seeing it stop because they share an agreement with him. So in verse 13 and 14, Pharaoh amplifies his attacks on the people of God once more and subjects the people of God to bitter slavery. And still it will not work. And his demonic plan even intensifies so that in verse 15, Pharaoh plans the post-birth abortive slaughter of all the Hebrew boys of Israel. The quickest ancient way to a holocaust for a society was to get rid of the men. Kill the boys. Get them rid of them. We'll give the women to people of our own nation. They'll quickly be engrafted in. They'll agree with us. They'll, they'll enjoy our society. And this is a moment where I now want to quickly get into the word Hebrew. As I pointed out, Genesis 14, 13. Um, Abraham is the first one called the father of uh, the Hebrews, but t- 12 times in the next 10 chapters of Exodus, we will have this word come up, Hebrews. It only comes up 22 other times in the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament, and, and there's still a little bit of a debate even today of what the fullness of Hebrews, the word Hebrew means, but there are kind of two things tied into it. The first, we can kind of see even how Hebrew, uh, Abraham, it's called a Hebrew. It's, it's, it's basically a statement of, they come from beyond. One who comes from beyond. And so for Abraham, it was the one who came from beyond the Euphrates, who came out here and to this land that God had set aside. He came from beyond, and um, it was kind of a t- title of endearment, in that sense but the the Egyptians and the Philistines will often use this as a slur they'll use it as a slur in the bible hebrew and what they're basically saying is they're basically pointing out the distinct peculiarity of these people of god that they are they're hebrews they're they, they're not beyond us in a positive sense. They're, they're distinct from us. They're separate from us. We want nothing to do with them. And, and so that is actually tied into this that basically there is a lack of conformity or desire to conform with these ideals that is tied into that name. Basically, they stand on the other side of the river. It was a cultural slur. And so whether the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Philistines or the Persians or the Assyrians or the Romans or the Greek, they were the Hebrews. They were the ones who kind of stood apart. They didn't want to intermix so much. Hebrews would not necessarily ideally intermix with the philosophies where they're taken by every wind of doctrine as we read in Ephesians. Uh, but they were different, and and actually, when you understand that this idea of Hebrew is one who comes from beyond, might even help you appreciate some New Testament passages, like Philippians chapter three, verse five, when Jesus is called the Hebrew of Hebrews. In one sense, he is the most slandered one, and yet he stings, stands distinctively apart from all others who have ever been born of woman. And I make much of this to just ask you in your own life, are you a Hebrew in your community? Would your friends and family members say, who, who are worldly, who are living worldly lives? Go, yeah, they're distinct. They're distinctively set apart. You can tell they're set apart for the God they believe in. Does your life have that kind of Hebrew testimony? Yeah, maybe they even slander you. Maybe they slur at you. But they still can't help but notice that you stand apart. Not in a haughty way, not in a Pharisaical kind of way, but in a I believe this kind of way. Because when the world cracks down on being a Hebrew, on being one who stands apart for the sake of God's name, Are you going to be one who is found standing on the world side? Or are you going to be the one who stands on the other side of that river? One other quick thing I want to mention. I'm going to leave to Hollywood movies. The guessing of the Pharaoh or the Pharaohs who participate in all of the book of Exodus. Realize Moses lived in the household of Pharaoh and he never names the Pharaoh. He never names the Pharaoh. God knew this story would be passed down. We're going to be talking about this story all throughout history. Eternity. Pharaoh's name for all his power, his ancient power, God has blotted out. Didn't want it preserved. Didn't want it saved in his word. We're going to honor that. I'm not going to make any guesstimates. Uh, Even though there are good guesstimates, as did the name. We're going to appreciate the fact that the biblical narrative... Does not name this pharaoh, but that actually goes into the next point. Who does this passage name? It names two midwives of Egypt and talks about the blessing of their households and how God approves of them and how God delights in them and how God loves them and, and God basically wants their names to be listed. Until like the last 400 years of world history, Women have always delivered babies for other women. Men didn't want to be a part of the process. Frankly, I was in the birth room for my wife. I didn't want to be a part of the process. I was busy watching, and often the doctor or my wife are screaming at me to, to help out in some way, and I'm just busy, you know, enjoying the whole thing. Uh, but these midwives were people that we're not prominent to their society. They're probably the least of all midwives. They're, they're midwives to the Hebrew women. They're like the CDC for Hebrew women delivery. And Pharaoh comes to them and says, kill the boys, kill the boys. And actually in the response to this, even my fav- one of my favorite theologians for the Old Testament, they try, they sometimes try to say they're not lying to Pharaoh in their response. The the fact that they talk about vigorous births as if Hebrew women are like the Nolan Ryans of, of giving birth and they just, boom, the babies fly out at quick speeds. They're lying. They're lying. And you know they're lying not by verse 19, I believe, where that's stated, but you know they're lying because of how God blesses it afterwards in verses, I believe, 20 and 21. He blesses their lie because Pharaoh, at this point, is evil. He's demonic. He's making war against the people of God. and you don't need to comply with evil. You know, we talked about the Higgins boat and the, the flap going down. Last time I was here when we preached on, uh, we looked at the text from First John, "The whole world is under the power of the evil one, and how the Christian life is essentially the, the flap goes down and you run, and you go and you fight. Because the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Eisenhower didn't need to send someone to to tell the German troops, oh yeah, yeah, they're going to storm here, shoot over there. You don't need to help evil. You don't need to help your enemy. You can lie to your enemy in holy war. There are a couple times in scripture where this happens. Rahab is another example. These women do that. You know, um... Cory Tenblum's father. I'm his name's skipping me at the moment. Casper uh, Tenblum. Shortly before he was betrayed, went to death. He was asked by somebody, "Why are you doing this? Don't don't you realize what the Germans will do if they find out that you're hiding Jews?" And and he talked about just, I understand. But the opportunity to bless such a wonderful ancient people of God, I, I can't, I can't allow them to just be sent to their death in the Holocaust. And I think it was only about like a week later. Not only was he arrested by one who betrayed him, but his four children, his his nephew, and only Corey survived the camps. Only she survived the camps. And, and yet God, just as he was faithful to the household of the midwives, just as their name is remembered, Casper's name is remembered. His, his history wasn't lost to us. And actually his daughter is probably, of any Reformed woman who's ever lived, been able to share the gospel was able to share the gospel more, more than any other Reformed woman who's ever lived. That's what God does. God blesses those whom fear Him more than they fear the laws of this world, the unholy laws of this world. He blesses such things. I think of Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. When Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And yeah, Jesus said hell. There also is a little bit of irony and, and wit to the midwives' responses. You can't do that Pharaoh you can't put this community's children to death they, they just are stronger than Egyptian women and there's a subtle truth there because they are a community found under the strongest name of all the name of their Lord in heaven the wicked rulers of yesteryear, whether it be this Pharaoh the wicked rulers of today they will not have names found in the Lord's book of life They have names that will be lost to human history. So many have names that have already been forgotten. Societies that have already come and gone. Belief systems. And more names will be forgotten. And yet there is another set of names. Those who resist the powers of evil. Those who are willing to speak out against evil. While it might seem futile or utterly pointless. God blesses such courage. God blesses such names. God remembers them. And he's written them down in his book. Don't leave this place. Don't leave any community of faith. Believing more in politicians to rule your actions. No, resist evil wherever evil is found. And do it out of a love for God. And have a healthy displeasure for those who make war against that which God calls good and moral and upright and, and make war against God and his character. And as we draw to a close on this passage, the midwives will not comply and so the Pharaoh has to come up with maybe you could call it a final solution of sorts. He enlists the entire nation That nation that had been terrified to see the prosperity and the progress of those people in the land of Goshen, he enlists the entire nation to help him kill the male children of the Hebrews, those who stand apart. And there's two things I want to bring out in this. I'm going to flip the order of how I wrote it. First is this. It was really easy for an Egyptian to throw the Hebrew baby into the water. See, the Nile was revered as a god. It was one of their gods, one of their many pagan gods. And so, boom, throw the baby into the water, let the baby die. If Nile God wants to save the baby, Nile God could save the baby. And so it wasn't hard to convince this pagan culture to participate in this. But also, there's this reality to what he proposed. It's a silent death. No one's forced to hear it. No one's forced to watch it. It washes away. It's sterile in one sense. Drowning is a silent death. Uh, just thinking about my training as a lifeguard, being in San Diego, there are massive waves, 15, 18 foot waves. Biggest waves I've ever seen in San Diego. And, you know, in the depiction of movies, it's like the screaming drowning person. No, that's not how it works. The drowning person just quietly drifts off, you never hear a word. Go no away. Let me just pause for a second. We think of our own nation's leaders and think of anywhere they've said, This is a good death where it silently takes place, or it just drifts off. No harm, no foul. Don't worry about it. Nothing happened. Does that still happen in our own day, or do patterns repeat themselves? And don't you dare be upset at the idea later on when God will use the waters to drown the Egyptian army. It was Pharaoh's idea, after all. He he came up with it at first. It's what he was trying to do to the Hebrew people. Actually, it's fascinating. Those waters are... Connected to baptism in the New Testament. They connect the the waters that will celebrate. (sighs) The the passage of this Hebrew community onto the other side of that river. To now be fully separate and distinct from the Egyptian people. Those waters will be tied to baptism itself. And I point that out for the following factor. You got to deal with the water problem one way or the other in this life you're going to slip into death one day. Whether it's in your sleep and it's quiet or what have you, you're going to slip into death one day. And how will you come into those waters? Will you come into those waters separate and distinct and set apart a Hebrew? Distinctively of the Lord? Even if you have former sins, we all have former sins. So I still have sins and you still have sins. But desiring to live set apart in this world for the, our Lord of lords and our King of kings, will you come to those waters in that manner? Or will you go down into death just fighting? And fighting and battling and hating God, hating His truth, believing whatever lie the world and its enemies of God want to tell you and teach you and have you believe. You know, you won't give up on the thing you learn to be true and whether it's the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s, the, the, what truth is in the world shifts so fast. You won't surrender it to the Lord and what you know He says in His Word. Are you going to go down as an enemy to God? Don't do that. The Lord will not always be silent. Exodus is proof of that. While it seemed like for hundreds of years as people have been left alone, He's working. He's in their midst. He's doing amazing things. And he's going to do even more incredible things as we march through this text. And so so maybe some of you are, are living this life and you're going, God's not doing anything for me. Or, you know, it just doesn't seem like there's a God. No, do not be a fool. Do not drown quietly in the waters of judgment. No, rather, have the hope of a Hebrew. Have the hope of the one who is the Hebrew of Hebrews separate and distinct for us, the Lord of our salvation, our God and our Redeemer. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, giver of the true line of Judah, who both will devour his enemies, but also as gentle as a lamb for those in whom come and find shelter in the shadow of your son's death. Help us to be separate and distinct from this world. Help this new year bring upon us a greater desire for faithfulness. Help us to finally and firmly cut off things that continue to be appendages of sin, appendages of rebellion, help protect us from the truths, the false truths that are held up in society that would strive to undo our walk and strive to call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. Let us, Lord, be mindful of you, our precious Lord and Savior. Let us not forget you because you did not forget us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us quietly and privately take a moment to confess our sins before the Lord.